Welcome to the Choose You Now podcast. I'm your host, Juliana Hever. Dr. Chris Donahue is a therapist, lecturer, educator, and the author of the books, Rebel Love and Sex Outside the Lines, Authentic Sexuality in a Sexually Dysfunctional Culture. He practices general psychology and specializes in individual and couple sex, relational, and marital therapy. His areas of focus include sexual and relational trauma work, sexual compulsivity, sexual dysfunctions, body image issues, body dysmorphia, body positivity, gender and non-traditional sexuality, identities, and relationships. Listen to find out how this real-life love doctor practices self-love by choosing himself. I am so excited to talk to you today, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So I'm not going to lie. I am on the more shyer side of the spectrum when it comes to talking about sex, especially publicly, but I know how enormously important this subject is, which is why I'm so grateful to have you here today. And uh, just to emphasize how brilliantly, perfectly positioned you are to speak on this, can you please share, I love this, your awesome double PhDs? Yeah. So I, I, I did doctoral training in both clinical psychology and also in human sexuality and sexology, and then went and got uh, nationally certified also as a sex therapist. So I kind of weave in both mental health, psychology, and also uh, relationships and sex. It's so extraordinarily important. Okay. Not to geek out too much, but um, I'm kind of curious about your dissertations. Oh, yeah. Well, what's interesting about that, as well as kind of my entire, you know, career and journey is I've always found a lot of value in the things that people aren't talking about, right? Like, what are the topics that we have a lot of cultural anxiety and silence around? And so anything I ever did academically, and even, I guess, professionally, was always trying to kind of speak to those things that we keep in the shadows and that we silence or we shame. So my, my early work, funny enough, in my master's program was really challenging and dismantling the way that we look at addiction. Um, in our culture, we all have a different kind of relationship to all these different processes and, and things in our lives. And so I was just kind of like really dismantling, challenging the way we approach that whole concept. And, um, and then in my doctoral program, a lot of my work was really on dismantling uh, sex addiction as a diagnosis that my work looks at how we use that to pathologize things that make us a little anxious and kind of use that as a scapegoat. So my work really has a lot of like boundary pushing in it. Um, so that's kind of been like the core of my work. It's fascinating. And I have a million things to ask you, but I just want to go back a little bit. Like, how did you take that path? How did you know that this is such an interesting perspective? Yeah, I get asked that a lot. And it, and it wasn't because I had, um, a sex so centered in my own life as much as I was one of those people where on paper, my life was very standardized. I was raised in a white upper-class neighborhood. Everything was by the book. But at the same time, I always kind of lived my life on the margins, right? Where I was one of those people that was getting into like the punk rock music scene before that became cool. And I was getting into tattoos. And so I just always really found value about the things on the margins. And psychology, probably like nutrition and diet is, is a very phenomenally um, complex and exciting field. But at the same time, in practice, I wasn't, I wasn't finding it as fun and dynamic. And a colleague of mine said, hey, I work at a center that exclusively focuses on sex and relationships. And they were like, you really have a confident personality style that would lend itself to that work. And and, in working over there a few hours, I really started to develop an interest because again, I I love sex as an entry point. When we talk about sex, 
our body esteem is in there, our self-esteem is in there, our communication skills, um, our traumas, our general confidence. And so I started to see that it's such a beautiful entry point to learn so much about who we are and where our work is that it just took over. Oh my God, that's gorgeous. So you love it, obviously, when you talk about it. Yeah. And what I love about how you talk is it's very, to me, it feels very new and modern. Like I've never heard anyone talk about this stuff the way you do. I'm really quite blown away. And um, that's a compliment. Thank you for saying it like that. I think, I think the most hurtful thing I could ever hear is someone saying, yeah, we heard that before. (laughs) Yeah, right. No, because you like to be different. You said you find value in things on the margin and you definitely do live that life and you're inspiring people to think like, literally I'm so shy about this stuff, but right now I can't wait to talk to you. That's, that's how inspiring you are. I'm just going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So much to say. I'll start here. Um, You talk about having sex as a developmental milestone, that sex doesn't promise anything. And this perspective is so unique. You talk about sex positivity, and I would love for you to elaborate on that, please. Yeah, it's a very controversial point because a lot of us move through the world really believing that uh, we need to uh, silence or shame or push away from that so as to be seen as a viable partner or someone who's very serious about relationships And what I see in my office, because I'm given a really beautiful vantage point where I get to see many, many hours a week, what happens five years, 10 years, or 15 years or more down the road when certain things aren't explored, assessed, or prioritized in a couple. And one of the things that's constantly coming in my office is we have this idea that if we like someone enough or we're attracted to them enough, that that's all that matters and that everything else will just fall into place. But there's elements in our life that are their own distinct levels of chemistry and compatibility. And the longer term happiest relationships have explored all of those pieces. So it's really a punchy statement that just says, hey, if you're really serious about this commitment and you want it to work, at some point earlier on, explore all levels of compatibility to really make sure it's there because it's not enough to just like someone or to find them hot, right? Oh, what does that mean? Okay, I'm like, I've got the most complicated personal life. So I'm like, I need to, I need to get a PhD in your work. <laughs> so- uh, I mean, that's what my work tries to do. Probably like yours, just chisel away at it a little bit, you know, get the ball rolling. But I just say to people, listen, I, I appreciate where we are culturally, but if you're really interested in someone at some point, you do need to enter into eroticism and affection and really explore what that's like. And please don't delay it as though it doesn't have any value. That's really all that's trying to say. And that there's so much we can learn about someone in that process. In fact, really think about it. Like on a first date, you go to coffee or to dinner or for a hike if you know, you're know you in LA. And um, I'm in LA. Okay, beautiful. So you get it. So we're all at Runyon or wherever we are. Yeah, yeah. And you can learn about really peripheral things, their favorite color and kind of movies they watch. Maybe we'll bump into like some parental stuff. But- but, the, but sex, and when I mean that, I mean that in a broad term. I mean that in terms of like affection and cuddling and eroticism. We learn so much more and we can find out so much more about what we're made of. And so I tell people, get into that sooner. It, 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 it is more stabilizing and culturally we have so much anxiety around that. So it's really just about getting people to be more confident to truly explore the totality. And so it's like, Start with a coffee date or start with hooking up. But either way, we need to do both. And if after having sex with someone, you're still interested in spending time with them, 
that's very valuable to know because after sex, if you're not, that's also really good to know on the front end because for some people, that's all that was driving it. And they might not even know that. And once we really get over that, we find out what's left and if we still want to connect. And so it saves many relationships. Whoa. Okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So not only is there anxiety around that socially, blah, 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 but there's so much guilt and shame that's been associated. I know that's like deep, deep stuff and philosophical and from antiquity, right? But how, so that's what I love about how you talk about it. You make it so like you're normalizing that. Yes, exactly, exactly. Because this is a really hard conversation and it throws people off because most people have been told the opposite, right? Oh, yes. if you're really wanting to be seen as wife material or someone who's really available, do not in any way bump into or bring up anything sexual or erotic because it'll be perceived as though, and it's like, well, that's pretty immature and primitive, right? Because as adults, we have to have the ability and confidence to really talk about everything. And that is one of the main things in romantic relationships. I mean, if romantic relationships aren't willing to acknowledge and center and prioritize romance, well, then it's called friendship. And so it's okay to say to someone, I think you're phenomenal. And I'm really interested in pushing it forward and taking it to the next step physically because I'm that interested in you. And I really want to explore that with you and make sure that that compatibility and chemistry is there so we can both feel more confident that we should keep taking this forward. Yeah, you're blowing my mind. Okay, so the podcast <laughs> is mostly about choosing you. I mean, it's about choose you now. Right. And some people think that choosing yourself might be like a selfish act. That's kind of what we're trying to dispel here. So do you think by choosing ourselves, we're making our relationships stronger? Yes. Yes. Because what other, because we are always with ourselves, right? And the self that we bring forward or into a relationship is a prime determinant of the relationship success because all relationships are co-created. Ideally, Every person you have a relationship to in your life, a friend, a colleague, uh, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, whatever it is, they're, they're all going to be a little different because, again, we co-create. Uh, that person before you helps bring out certain parts of you and quiet down other parts. And so knowing who we are, being confident in who we are, taking care of ourselves, having boundaries, doing self-care is the primary part of all that. And a lot of clients, I think, do the opposite. They, they enter the dating world or even marriage thinking, I want to be liked. And that's a complete abandonment of self. Because what you're really saying is, I'm prioritizing them, what, they, what I think and I'm fantasizing they need and want from me. And you're, you're leaving your truth. You're leaving your authenticity. And so I always say to clients, lead authentically. Like truly lead authentically. Dates are about being known, not being liked. Don't go in there trying to be liked. They'll say like, what should I wear? Where should I go? And I'll say, the things you wear, the places you like to go, be self, show up fully and let that determine if this was a match or not. But if you show up not centering yourself or putting yourself first and you just want to be liked and you're making sure they're happy and content, you can't really assess compatibility. Is that, does that make sense? Oh gosh, yes. I'm like taking notes, but I'm like so glad this is recorded so I can listen to this times. <laughs> and it should be our new mantra. It's so good. Because that's the concern is I think, I think we've lost authenticity and I think we've really watered down who we really are out of uh, not thinking we're good enough or not thinking we're desirable or not thinking we align with market value, which is a horrible concept. But sadly, we live in a world where we've all collectively determined that there's certain qualities that we think are better than others. And everyone's judging themselves based on that. And it's like you said, we're just abandoning ourselves and we do have to come back to ourselves. I mean, also there's this whole social movement now to be so careful not to offend anybody. And so how do you show up as yourself when you're so afraid to hurt someone's feelings, no matter what you say, you know, I mean, 
I could talk about protein and people get offended. <laughs> it's like, oh, but see, this is I, this is where I love the intersection of your work and my work because I I walk an interesting line as well because I don't want people to um, enter toxic uh, elements of diet or gym culture. But nutrition is a real thing, and it's an important part of mental health and physical functioning, right? So. I agree with you. It's it's like an interesting nuance to try to figure out how can we discuss these topics that are important and real without making someone feel shamed or marginalized. And and trust me, no matter what I post, it's offensive to someone. Even that comment you referenced, a quote of mine about developmental milestones around sex, someone said, oh, well, then you're shaming those that haven't gone through those. And I'm saying, no, I'm just acknowledging that they exist. And here's what they might look like. But, but people are very sensitized. So I'm, I'm with you on it. It's hard. Well, can you elaborate? I mean, that wasn't even one of my questions, but that's so interesting about just briefly the toxic elements of diet and gym culture, like what you're referencing. Yeah. I mean, we, I, I think we're in a time where we've gotten a little bit away from what the goal of health or physical or mental health is. And I think that we've normalized some things that traditionally have maybe had some problematic elements to it, right? And yes. so all that just to really say, because I mean, you could probably talk about this for hours, yeah. but it's basically just to say, make sure that you're not harming yourself with your nutrition or gym goals. That's all it's really saying. Make sure that it's making you feel good and making you feel better and that you're not doing it for reasons that aren't rooted in wellness. That's what my next book is about. But I think that now we need to write a book together because there's so much to explore on this. And no one does. No one in my field brings nutrition or diet into mental health. And that's bizarre to me because I don't, you don't know this because it is not in my bio. My first degree was in nutrition and food science at NYU. That is oh, wow. actually how I began the journey of counseling and psychology. And so it's always been, and I'm plant-based, like I heard you are as well. You are? Since I was 19. Because of that program. <laughs> oh my God. I've been doing plant-based living for decades. And I think it's a valuable, vital, important thing for a multitude of reasons. So we could even talk about that at some point, write a book on that together. Yeah. We need to write a book. And Chris, I didn't think I could love you anymore, but there you yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> we are twins. Twins. Totally. It's a beautiful thing because it's hard. I, you know, it's hard to find people that are like-minded. And I think plant-based living has so much powerful stuff in it, socially, politically, uh, psychologically, physically. But nonetheless, all of that, just to say that when clients are really getting into looking at what they're eating and working out, I'm just always making sure that they're not abusing themselves with it, right? That they're not walking away feeling worse off because of the goals they've set. So we really break down you have a plan and a vision. What part of you is that coming from? Is that realistic? Is there an intuitiveness? Are you learning to still listen to your body? Um, and, and even myself, like I, I have all the boxes checked in terms of like what we would deem to be the important elements of health, but I'm still aging. I have an aging body. We all do. I've had some injuries and it's really forced me to go back to basics. And that's been so mentally healthy for me. Oh, that's amazing. Amazing. Okay, I just want to keep going on yes. a million things, but I'm going to go, I'm going to stick to my list. I'm going to stick to my sure. list. <laughs> okay, so my next official question was, um, well, you kind of answered this, but I'll just ask it anyway. Can, can we have all kinds of positive, healthy relationships with others if we don't have a positive relationship with ourselves? Love this. I think it's a very complicated question with a very complicated answer because um, our uh, self-esteem is actually relational esteem. 
our confidence in our self-worth is very much an accumulation and a reflection back to us of all the different things we encounter in the world. So I always challenge when people say, you know, it's an inside job. It is. A lot of it really is. But what also does matter is the kinds of things you're seeing on television and whether or not they reflect back that your gender, your body, your height, your age, if they have worth and value, your self-esteem is relationally related to the way everyone in your life has treated you. And it's a little bit of both. And why that matters is because, yes, I work with people on the inside job part, but I also work with them on examining, are the people you're socializing with healthy for your self-esteem? And are they reflecting back that you have worth and value? Are the things you're following on social media also reflecting that back? If I'm working with someone who's fat identified or larger bodied, I don't want them following only things that are shaming and mocking that. They need to build community that's very similar to that, right? So our self-esteem is very much rooted in the way the world has told us we have worth and value. And that's an important part of the work is to examine that and to change that and to shut down certain conversations and start building community in certain places and areas. And so it's more comprehensive than just an inside job. So all that to say is I think it's both. I think some people, they do need others to tell them they have worth and value and they can start to internalize that. And from that place, they can start to do the inside work where others, it's going to be more internal first. Mm, Thank you for that. Oh, let's talk about this past year and a half that we've all endured. How has it been challenging for a lot of relationships? I tweeted last year, right when we went into lockdown, I said, there's going to be a lot of babies and divorces this year. Uh, <laughs> and so yet there was. True. Yeah, there really was. You know, it, it was interesting because I I, it, I broke it down into phases. There was like what was happening in the first phase of it all. Then there was like the second phase and the third phase. The first phase, we were all kind of in shock. Like, what is this? Things are shutting down. Our lives are shrinking. And then the second phase was kind of like a flatness and a depression. And we were just like floating and in limbo. And then the final stage is we were getting restless and angry. And so relationships kind of went through all of that where mid-phase when everyone's feeling bored and restless relationships started to really tank. And then when we kind of saw the end near, if that's even a real thing or whatever, um, a little more aggression kind of showed up. So I was working with couples because I was still doing telemedicine, thankfully. And I was working with couples on how do I find space away from a partner when we're literally trapped in our home around the clock for days? Like, how do I set boundaries? How do I find space? What does self-care look like? And also just learning how to right size everything People were amplifying everything. Something that maybe would normally be about a two or three or four, they were like making a seven, eight, or a nine. And so I felt like every session I was saying to everyone, let's bring it down a little bit. Let's right size that. I know that feels like a nine, but that seems like it's more of a four or five. I wonder if we can kind of like regulate a little bit more. And so I was working with people on being softer, on being kinder. I was working a lot with couples on finding time apart. Some of them, the best they could do is hide in the bathroom for a few hours with music, candles, and a bath. Others would go for a drive alone. Like It was really interesting what we were having to come up with and figure out. But I think a lot of the trouble and trauma was born out of too much closeness. And that really creates irritation and annoyance over things that normally might not. Right. And on the flip side, there were so many people that were not in relationship that were isolated, so isolated. That's right. And really, really struggling around that and also struggling with re-entering the world. And so the work with them was within what's possible technologically or even within safety, how can they still try to connect with others? And so 
clients were, you know, going outdoors, wearing a mask and, you know, six feet apart. And I was having them do that at least, you know, once a day or three times a week. I was making sure they were FaceTiming so they can make eye contact with people, right? So it was a lot of like staying connected. I was telling them, you have to connect with three people a day. I don't care via what method, but three times a day, you have to be reminded there's others and you have to like work that relational muscle. It was strange. Yes. It was a strange time. Still is. Yeah. I know. And even like being outside and trying to connect with someone, especially in LA, like people don't usually smile that much here, but like with the masks, you can't even see the smiles, you know? <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And, and we still are a little kind of uh, spooked and uneasy around each other. I was just at Starbucks earlier. We're all wearing our masks. I was waiting in line for my coffee and everyone's just doing this odd radius away and around yes. everyone and like everyone's leaning away and some poor gentleman accidentally coughed and everyone panicked. And like, <laughs> it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. So phenomenal. Oh, okay. A million things again, but I'm going to go back to my list. Okay. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about you. How do you, Chris, choose yourself? Oh, oh, I love that. I haven't been asked anything like that in a very long time. Um, for me, the way I've been doing that this year is I had a really busy year career-wise and I had a lot happening. And I realized that I was uh, drifting from myself by over-prioritizing work. And that even though it was like my work and related to me, it, it wasn't making me feel like I was taking care of myself or really prioritizing myself. So the way I've done that, the way I chose myself this year is to turn down a lot of things that I was offered so I could be with myself, but also really focus on what I value the most. And I love my work. I love the work Clearly. I get to do. But I also realized that there's more to me than that. And I wanted to make sure I had time for that. And so I was turning my phone off at 7 p.m. every night and no longer reachable. I was focusing on getting back to an art practice. I started cooking. I started cooking. That's something I never enjoyed. And yeah, powerful stuff for me. And it was very meditative. And it was self-care because I was willing to put that time and energy into myself, right? It's easier to heat something up in the microwave or get delivery. But I was like, I'm worth driving to the supermarket and following a recipe and struggling with that recipe and, and putting that time into myself. And so for me, that was really powerful. I'm not kidding. That was like, I could have thrown you that segue because my next question <laughs> was that I love to cook too. And that is my happy place too. So let's end the episode with a different kind of recipe. What are the ingredients to a happy, healthy relationship? Oh, okay. I like that too. Um, the first one I would say is compassion. I think we need to be a little more compassionate towards others. And I would apply that to every single person in our life. I think we need more compassion. Uh, the second one is I want us to really assess the impact we're having on other people. I'm constantly saying this to all of the individuals in my practice. Healthy individuals are aware of the impact they're having on those in their life. Let's make our presence in someone else's life something that enhances and makes their life better. Let's not make it okay to have our presence in someone's life as their boyfriend or husband or best friend, something that makes their life harder and more complicated. That is not what relationship of any kind is about. So it's like that compassion piece that swoops into have a, be a positive presence in their life. And number three, be willing to just forgive and repair. We often are willing to get rid of someone or kick them out of our life over very small infractions or disappointments. People are flawed. They will let you down many times. And as long as they're willing to take accountability, forgive and do the repair. 
Brilliant. Okay. And I also have to ask technically, since you're plant-based too, and you love to cook, what's your favorite thing to cook? Um, I love curries and I'm obsessed right now with this really random banana bread that I've been making. <laughs> and it, it's, it, what's so interesting in all of this is that I found out uh, naively uh, halfway through the pandemic that I had dangerously, dangerously high, high blood pressure. Oh, and I had to start really tracking my sodium, which is something I don't hear enough people talking about is sodium levels. I was doing two to three times the man the recommended amount a day. And Are you pushing towards fifteen hundred or twenty three hundred? There's two. Hardly. I'm pushing for fifteen and sixteen. Good for yeah. you. I gotta and send you my books. I've got please, all my recipes. Are like that, and it's worked. And that's been the best part is all of this effort to track and cook and monitor has dropped my blood pressure to the lowest part of the normal range. I've never been that low in my life, and so. All of my recipes are about being plant-based, but also low sodium, low sugar, and still delicious. Well done. You know what? Congratulations, Thank first you. of all. Thank Second you. of all, it's so rare on a plant-based diet to have blood pressure because it makes it easier when you are eating a plant-based diet. I mean, I, I have my clients getting off their medications for blood pressure um, with a plant-based diet, but you're right. Sodium is oft ignored, and I'm so excited that you found that, and it's so easy to do once you just kind of make a little bit, a few changes. It is. No meds needed. Yeah. Yeah. No meds needed. That's right. Okay. So producer Sanford wanted me to offer you, to, he wanted me to say to you that you shared so much with us about relationships and it was extraordinary and um, wanted me to offer you if you had any nutrition questions for, <laughs> you already studied nutrition. So I'm curious. Well, no, I mean, and that's the beautiful thing is it's something that is back pocketed. And, and so this is just an exciting podcast to be a part of because it kind of recenters it. But I guess my question's around fiber, you know, I had been moving through the world. It's, it's been such a fascinating uh, time around diet for me. And fiber was another interesting one where I was just pushing through the day thinking, you know, vegetable and fiber is good. And I was naively thinking, well, then it's always better to do more and more and more. And through that journey, I also realized I was taking in more fiber than my stomach could handle. Mm. And so I was slowly also backing off of, because I was like bulking up every single meal. And so I guess it's not a question so much as just like, I would love to hear your thoughts on just that topic in, in a very quick soundbite is, is fiber something that you tend to see creating digestive issues? Or is it something that you think if people are methodical about raising it, that it tends to work better? Because I was going from zero to 60 and now I'm back at like a zero. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's actually the latter. It's the okay. fact that most people, I think it's 97, I think the latest statistic is still that 97% of the US population gets the minimum, doesn't even get the minimum recommended fiber intake in a day, which is like 14 grams per thousand calories, which is not that much. And if you look back at like the real paleo diet and the older diets where we were getting 75, 90 grams of fiber a day, so it's quite significant difference. So I see people struggling when they're starting to incorporate more plant foods because their body's like, whoa, what is this fiber? And they have to re-populate you know, populate the microbiome because everything shifts when you change your diet. So I think if you can, st I'm curious, we should talk about this later, but like, I'm curious, like what you, why you felt it was too much. And if you felt a, because I mean, you can't eat a plant-based diet, especially a whole food plant-based diet without getting lots of fiber. So I think for me, what it was, was I was underestimating 
the fiber in my grains or my protein sources and choices. And I was just zeroing in on the vegetables, forgetting that like the fruit, the nuts, the seeds, the grains also brought, brought in some fiber and kind of like the sodium, I was going double and triple in what should be in one meal. And I was doing that in every meal. And so my stomach was always kind of still digesting the prior meal as I'm dumping in even more. Ah, right. So then I would say to like try to space out and make sure you're hungry before you eat and like go, I kind of, I love time restricted feeding and stuff like that, just to give your GI tract time to recover and take some time off. And that might help. And like, and I think it's just the consistency of eating this about the same on the same schedule can be really helpful in mitigating any kind of symptoms. And that's affirming. Thank you. Cause that's, that's what I've been doing the past week is trying to kind of set up a schedule and checking in more with like, do I feel full and am I hungry yet? Because before I was just like stuffing that bad boy down. You know yeah. I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all tend to do that. So good for you. I'm so, I'm so thank happy you. for your success. Thank I think you. you're absolutely extraordinary. I can't wait to talk to you again. I can't thank you enough for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Wow. I love Chris's transparency, his authenticity, and his wisdom. As I said, I tend to be on the shyer side when it comes to these topics, but the way he explains them normalizes them and makes them very accessible. I know I will listen to this episode again and again, and I hope you enjoyed it too. If you are inspired and enjoy the Choose You Now podcast, please subscribe to the show, rate and review us on iTunes, and send us an email with questions and comments at chooseyounowpodcast at gmail.com. For nutrition services and more information, visit me at plantbaseddietitian.com. I invite you to choose yourself now, and I'm signing off with lots of leafy green love.